All right. The Parsha is called Parsha Va'era. It's the second portion of Exodus. And thank you, Karen, for convening last week. Um, but I actually, I want us to start before that on page 357. So open to page 357. Chapter 5. Hi, Willie. Did you get my email back? Oh. Okay, well, we might have time. I might have time tomorrow. Great. Let's say a blessing. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam Asher Kidshanu B'mitzvotav B'tzivanu La'asok B'divrei Torah. Amen. In Va'era, we have the first seven plagues. Uh, but I wanted to start before then with the, the initial encounter between Moses and Pharaoh, which then continues. Did you get to this last time? That's what I thought. So I wanted to look at the initial encounter. Um, and that starts in chapter 5. And I brought as a commentary some, some words of Abraham Joshua Heschel, who... I'll tell you more about it in a little bit. Let's read a little bit, and then, then I'll tell you about how, I'm, how Heschel is blowing me away again. Okay. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says yod heh vav -Hey, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may celebrate a festival for me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is yod heh vav -Hey, that I should heed and let Israel go? I do not know yod heh vav -Hey, nor will I let Israel go. That's the... Okay, so I... Before I spout off, Let's just talk a little about those verses. What what are you what are you hearing? What uh, any comments you want to make? Any yes. First, he's asking to let my people go, but he's not asking for freedom for my people. That's right. Because mm -hmm. they can stay there and become liberated as free people, but that's not what it's about. So I was just wondering. Why? Why does, uh, you know, um, Pauline just showed me Rabbi Jonathan Sachs's commentary on this uh, very passage. Why does Moses not say to Pharaoh, let my people go? We're leaving. To be free. To be free. Instead, so that he can celebrate a festival uh, for me in the wilderness for three days. Well, it doesn't say three days here. It says three days later. Um, that question just screams out from the Torah, right? Uh, there's not going to be a single answer to that. However, Rabbi Sachs quoting uh, earlier commentators and then putting it in very contemporary language says, the, an oppressed people don't have the uh, ability to go 
to the uh, 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 the the the, the, the uh, all-powerful leader and say, "Let my people go." They are not in a position to tell the full truth. Uh, they have to strategize. They have to dissemble. They have to. This is the nature of being a powerless. Uh, uh, being powerless is you have to. You have to uh, often be cagey, uh, and uh, um, that's one proposed explanation. Um, I like that explanation. I think it's consistent with human behavior um, that uh, you don't tell when you're trying to escape from slavery. You don't tell the massa, "Oh, by the way, we're heading north on the Underground Railroad." just wanted to let you know. You say, oh, our people have a special festival we celebrate in the woods, and we just want to take our drums and go out for just one night, please. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? What do you think, Harris? I think I didn't ask the question right. Oh, OK. Um, Try again. The Jews are oppressed <clears throat> yes. within this city. Within this country. Within this country. Mm -hmm. But he's not asking for them to be non-oppressed. He's asking for them to leave. Yes. Okay. So why is he asking for everyone to leave rather than asking for them to have rights and privileges where they are? Oh, good question. Good question. What do you think, Pauline? Well, I, I think that it comes later when we look at why, why all these um, what we call miracles, but were really great signs and wonders? Why these signs were made, and because of the one of the things the Torah wants to teach us is, I think, the importance of distinction, the distinction between Egypt and the Jews, and the distinction is. So great in terms of what and who has to be worshipped and for what reason. That is one of the reasons it says for signs and wonders. Why did we need these signs? It goes through all, a lot of biblical commentaries. But it says later on in the next parsha to be distinct from the people in Egypt. There are places where you just can't be free. We all know that in our lives. Well, so I, let me just, uh, a, a, a couple of thoughts about that. The most straightforward, <clears throat> remember you read Torah on, traditionally Torah is understood on multiple levels at the same time. On the level of narrative, called the Pshat level, the Jews are strangers in a strange land. They've been imprisoned there for a long time. And they are yearn and they have remembered and want to and, and are going to return to their land. So it's not their place. That's the plain meaning. They haven't adopted it as their home. They're waiting to go home. So that's the plain meaning. Uh, I'd say on the symbolic level, as Pauline, I think another way of talking what Pauline was saying is that the journey out of Egypt is not necessarily a journey that's geographic. This is that the story is how do you 
how do you escape the burden of tyranny and oppression? And so a physical journey takes place in the landscape of the Torah, but on the, on the level of spiritual growth and um, communal development, it could, be, it could happen in the same place. You don't have to necessarily move to another place to, to change your outcome. So I would answer the question on both those, those two levels. What did you want to say, Bruce? You answered it for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's both the plain meaning and then reading it as a symbolic journey, then um, uh, they have to get out from under the burden, the thumb of oppression. And so they take a physical journey and escape. Um, okay. Yeah. Just briefly, it may be just for two reasons that they need to leave. One is they can't ever forget about being slaves if they're in the place that they were slaves. Mm-hmm. But if we're thinking from a mental perspective, you need to leave the spot you were to, in order to start anew again. I can stop. I, I accept what you said. We have to, even without my question, you'd have to get to what you're saying anyway. But I guess when I think about slaves in the United States, um, they didn't petition to leave. They, they, right? Wait, while they were slaves? Or? While, while they were slaves, they didn't, they weren't like the Jews in this story where they wanted to leave their country and, and start anew. They, they wanted freedom for where they were. Not, I, that's the same question. Not exactly. Not exactly. Many slaves uh, fought and died to to not get on the slave ships, to try to get back to Africa, to, so, so, no, they're... they're get back to Africa? Absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah. And, there were slave revolts, there were slave revolts, Liberia is... Uh, what about when Monroe, what about once a period of time has passed, say 100 years, slaves 100 years later wanted to go back to Africa? Absolutely. Just like the Jews, two thousand years later. At what point had, did African Americans not want to go back? Never. <laughs> oh, so we—that's what. No, they're in this. It, no, you can't speak. Uh, you can't make generalizations about African Americans. Um, but there are still African Americans today and throughout this, this since since the the forties and fifties and sixties who went back to Africa because they wanted to go to where they'd been stolen from. For most of them, it was a shocking and disorienting experience because they'd been gone for so long that the cultures of Africa and their, and their, their own cultural sense had, over the generations, had uh, diverged. diverged. But that doesn't change the fact that, uh, a, that there was and continues to be a lingering sense of having been stolen from their homeland. Yeah, it's new, it's new. Some do. So you have to be careful about saying they. Majority. No, you, you can't say that either. Some do. But the issue is that these were people who were stolen from their countries, forced into a new, a new place. Then their, their bondage was enforced. In other words, it was, if, you, if you could catch an escaped slave, you got a bounty. So their actual ability to have any mobility was almost nil. That's why the Underground Railroad is such an extraordinary story. And it only involved a very small percentage of the slaves. After emancipation, 
this, most slaves had no economic resources whatsoever. Where were they going to go? So they made their lives where they were. Uh, but that has nothing to do with them saying, oh no, we're staying in the South. The South is our home. It wasn't, it wasn't like that at all. It was totally about completely limited choices that they had. And, um, you know, so it's really, it's complex. And to understand it, and to understand our story, and to understand the Jewish history, you have to understand the dynamics of oppression. And the dynamics of oppression are that the oppressed group has little re recourse to power. So what, how, so, you know, how do you liberate yourself when you have little recourse to power? It's a giant question. And uh, armed, armed struggle, uh, spiritual resistance, you know, think about the Holocaust. Well, why did the Jews stay in Europe? Blah, blah, blah. All those stupid things people say about that. What was their option? And you can say the same about the slaves. You can say about the same about the slaves in Egypt. They didn't have an option. They couldn't get visas. Their, their laws had been passed against their ability to move places. It's not like they were just complacent. They were, uh, they were powerless. And this is when you blame the victim, this is frequently what happens. Why didn't they do something? They couldn't. And uh, it's an important thing to remember about the dynamics of tyranny and oppression. Anne? And the other thing is that uh, the Jews in the Holocaust, uh, if they wanted to get out of Germany, yeah. they were faced with, and go somewhere else in Europe. All of Europe was so anti-Semitic mm -hmm. that there was... Right. And the United States. This was at a time when anti-Semitism was probably at its highest ever in U.S. history. There was a time when Franklin Roosevelt turned away Jews. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And Charles Lindbergh, who was a mm -hmm. hero of the America First movement mm -hmm. in the 1930s, and I sit to saying that out loud because we have to identify what's going on now with our history, both Jewish going all the way back. The America First movement was a blisteringly anti-Semitic movement and Jews were forbidden visas. Mm -hmm. The Jews, so they went to Argentina, they went to Cuba, they went to wherever, you've heard those stories about the St. Louis having to finally go all the way back to Germany and all those people were killed. No one would give them haven. That's the nature of things when, when an oppressed group doesn't have, that's why Israel was founded, so that we would have state power, so that we could if we needed to have recourse to going somewhere where we could gain refuge. That's why Israel's there. And now, of course, because it, it, human beings, human being, that state power is being abused by the Israelis. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and so it will always be. But we have a story to tell about the powerless. Because we Jews have a story to tell as the powerless, we can then imaginatively reach out with empathy and understand better and transcend that other aspect of our human nature, which is to grab power and then abuse it. And that's, the, that's what a religion is supposed to do, and that's what our story is supposed to teach us. Um, and that's why I keep studying it. Um, I hope that's helpful. Uh, Bruce? I'm also thinking that the reason he may have suggested, Aaron and Moses may have suggested uh, a festival. Oh, good. Another so good. worship is. Oh, Bruce, hold on one second. So, in the. No, don't apologize. I'd say in traditional commentaries, it would say that was what Rabbi Jonathan said. Davar mm Acher, -hmm. another opinion. Rabbi Bruce says mm -hmm. on the same verse. And it's, again, it's not no but, it's 
Oh, well, how about? Now talk. The, the feeling seemed to be that the Jews that were in, in Egypt didn't quite trust Moses and Aaron. That's uh, for sure. They, they were very, more than hesitant. And so perhaps it's a first step where we took you three days out, we took you back, oh. we managed this, uh, trust us a bit. Right, come on this camping trip with us. Yeah, and it won't be so bad. We'll have a fest. We'll have a barbecue. We'll dance, <laughs> and then let's keep going. So maybe he was saying that also to the children of Israel. Let's find out. But then, how far can you take this on the shop level before it has to become more metaphorical? I think, for me, on the shot level, it's completely understandable that you would go to the master, the massa and say, oh, Massa, let my people go. We want to just worship our gods in, in our festival, and then we'll be back in three days, please, rather than say, let my people go, or, you know, you're... There's too much time gone by since Joseph, and where everything was great. Remember the beginning of Exodus? A new king arose who didn't know Joseph. Right. It's forgotten. So it couldn't be that, oh, why can't we improve our circumstance here, as you're saying, uh, and uh, make it better? It, it seems as though there has to be this divorce. Um, it seems that way. Something's got to, I think the old regime has to be overthrown for any change to happen because Pharaoh is not going to give up his power and control voluntarily. And a lot of the... Um all the Midrashic um, explanations of this, one of them is to look at that they were, at, that th this was a test for Pharaoh, that if he couldn't do even this small thing, then where do we go? Mm -hmm. They needed to see, and that, but, but then you say, okay, maybe, maybe Aaron and Moses would have figured this out, but it's being commanded here by God to go to Pharaoh and ask for this. So why does God have to test Pharaoh? But I don't want to go into the answer about that because it goes on too long. So now I want to look at the line. Pharaoh said, I do not know yud Hey vav Hey, And I will not let the people of Israel go. So again, on the, on the plain level, I don't recognize your God. And uh, the answer is no. But there's much more going on here. Because yud heh vav -Hey is not the is the God of creation. And the true king of the universe in Jewish understanding. Uh, we are all created in that image. Pharaoh is Egypt in his mind. He is God. He is the son of the biggest God in Egypt. He's called the son of Ra. Right. So in it, the understanding of kings as being having divine right or being gods themselves is true in, it's in many, many, many cultures around the world. The message here uh, expressed by me at this moment, it'll come out in different ways at different times by different people, is that someone who thinks they are 
in control of everything, will never recognize that there is a greater power in the universe. In other words, someone for whom their own ego is the end of all means, the, you know, the, the, that's what it's all for, me. And Ezekiel, in the Haftorah for this week's portion, uh, says a very famous phrase. Why don't you um, keep your finger on that page and look at um, page 401, which is the Haftorah portion for Fa'era. So this is Ezekiel. Down at the bottom where it says, on the twelfth day of the tenth month of the tenth year, the word of the Eternal came to me saying, Mortal, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak these words. Thus says the Eternal God, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You are like the great crocodile crouching in its Yorav, in its river branches or its Nile, thinking, this river is, my river is mine. I made it for myself. Okay, this is a classic statement. Pharaoh said, like a big crocodile, sitting in his river saying, this river is mine. I made it for myself. And then he goes on, if you turn the page, he says, well, look, you are going to get your ass kicked. Uh, and then, down on page 402, it says, because, in verse 9, it says, because you thought the river is mine, I made it. Egypt will be a desolation, a ruin, and they shall know that I am yod the actual maker of the Nile. So that metaphor that Ezekiel deployed, which is widespread sort of sense of, it's a great image of Pharaoh like a crocodile in the Nile, um, is for each of us, anyone who thinks that they made the world and it's mine, I made it, it's mine, you all are here to bow down and serve me. The definition of tyranny. And... Um, You know, we have a new president who is, it seems to have every characteristic of a pharaoh, right? I, I don't think I need even to elaborate. Uh, that is someone who does not know yod heh vav the voice from the burning bush that says, let my people go. So I've said this many ways over many years, but it's so relevant that this is our Torah portion right now. Um, so, as a commentary on, oh, so let's see what happens. Then we're going to go to Heschel. So, verse 3. What page? Page 357. They answered, the God of the Hebrews has become manifest to us. Um, let us go, we pray, a distance of three days into the wilderness to sacrifice to yod heh vav our God, lest God strike us with pestilence or sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you distract the people from their tasks? 
get to your labors. Sivlotechem. Sivlot labors. Sivlot is a stronger word than labors. Uh, what? More like enforced labor. Yeah, it means they're enforced labor. Um, that same day, Pharaoh charged the taskmasters and foremen of the people, saying, You shall no longer provide the people with straw for making bricks as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, but impose upon them the same quota of bricks as they've been making heretofore. Do not reduce it, for they are shirkers. Do you know what shirkers means? You know, lazy. Sound familiar? Way to talk about those, mm-hmm. those lazy Mexicans, those lazy slaves, those lazy, yeah, classic. Um, that is why they cry, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Not to mention someone on welfare who has to jump through 20 hoops just to get, a, just to get enough money, maybe, to put food on the table. Oh, lazy. Right? That's just the way, that's, that's, as old as, that's as old as it comes. Um, uh, let heavier work be laid upon the men. Let them keep at it and not pay attention to deceitful promises. So the taskmasters and foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you any straw. You must go and get the straw yourselves wherever you can find it but there shall be no decrease whatever in your work. Then the people scattered throughout the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw, and the taskmasters pressed them, saying, you must complete the same work assignment each day as when you had straw. And the foremen of the Israelites, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten. These are, for, the foremen of the Israelites appear to be Israelites. Shotrei mm-hmm. b'nei uh, Yisrael. Um, you know, you, that's classic too. I mean, that's how it works. Um, uh, why, they were asked, did you not complete the prescribed amount of bricks, either yesterday or today, as you did before? So the foremen of the Israelites came to Pharaoh and cried, Why do you deal thus with your servants? No straw is issued to your servants, yet they demand of us make bricks. Thus your servants are being beaten when the fault is with your own people. Well, they went right at Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said, You are shirkers. Shirkers, that's why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the eternal. Be off now to your work. No straw shall be issued to you, but you must produce your quota of bricks. Now the foremen of the Israelites found themselves in trouble because of the order. You must not reduce your daily quantity of bricks. So as they left Pharaoh's presence, they came upon Moses and Aaron standing in their path. And they said to them, may the eternal look upon you and punish you for making us loathsome to Pharaoh and his courtiers, putting a sword in their hands to slay us. Then Moses returned to the Eternal and said, Oh, my Lord, why did you bring harm upon this people? Why did you send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has dealt worse with this people, and still you have not delivered your people. And that's the end of that chapter. Uh, We'll keep going, but I just want to pause there for a second. It's interesting, the, the, Yad Chazak, the Yad Chazaka in the last verse, that's repeated twice. Uh, oh, I didn't read that verse yet. Oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. So then, 
the next verse, which is chapter 6, but the, the, Porsche, the weekly parshas don't follow the chapter divisions. Then the Yudhei said to Moses, You shall soon see what I will do to Pharaoh. He shall let them go because of a greater might. Indeed, because of a greater might, he shall drive them from his land. Uh, Yad Chazaka, a strong hand. And uh, if you look down at the note where it says 6-1, because of a greater might, it says better translated, only if forced will he drive them from his land. So the word can be used both ways. With a strong hand, I will force them only because of the way that he forced you with a strong mm -hmm. hand to do this. That's why I think that follows that. So again, for me, this is a classic description of any effort by as an enslaved or oppressed people to affect uh, their liberation, right? If there's a visionary leader who takes steps, the natural thing the tyrant will do will be to double down. And again, I'm going to talk about Trump. If your game is winning, period, and winning means being the person on top, then you will do anything to ensure that the people around you do not win. And you have an immediate escalation uh, rather than a negotiation. Um, and uh, it's staggering. Um, and so the leader, so Moses and Aaron, picture Moses and Aaron standing in the path when the foremen come out. I mean, it's incredible drama. When the foremen come out from Pharaoh's presence and say, you've made things worse for us. Mm -hmm. And Moses is bereft because Moses isn't doing this for his own aggrandizement. He's following a call that he only reluctantly takes. And uh, then he prays to God and says, what? You make, I'm only making things worse. What could possibly happen? Well, when you look at the, again at the dynamics of a liberation struggle, things usually do get worse before some kind of breakthrough takes place. It's yes? Sometimes on purpose, isn't it? Like if, if the Jews were complacently working, yeah, it's hard, but this is what we know, you know, sometimes you gotta crank it up a little bit to get them to realize how bad they have it. Well, and think about now an individual, say, who's enslaved to addiction, <coughs> right? Because I think the paradigm works on an individual level as well as a collective level. Uh, and everyone around is saying, stop. And it's not bad enough. It only gets bad enough when your life is in tatters around you, maybe. Maybe. Sometimes it just keeps getting I said worse maybe. and worse and worse. I said maybe. There's no guarantees. There's no guarantees that you will liberate. You will be liberated from the uh, bondage of addiction or, or many other... Uh... So... Um, so that's where this part, this last week's portion ends. And, in, and let's go a little further. Turn to page 382. Moses has just said, why did you send me? It's only getting worse. I'm making things worse. So God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yudhei Vafe, 
Remember, he's already introduced this name at the burning bush, but this is an important name. Remember what it means? I, it means two things. It means I am becoming what I am becoming. In other words, I am life unfolding. And it means, I will be with you. And what God has told Moses at the burning bush, the voice says, I have heard their cry, and I know their pain. That's as opposed to Pharaoh, right? is the empathy principle. I know their pain, therefore I must reach out to assist them. Whereas Pharaoh says, I do not know and I will not let the people go. Pharaoh is completely cut off because of his hardened heart from the empathy principle, from what it means to think about how another person is feeling. Because if everyone there is just to serve your own ego needs, then they don't exist as independent uh, souls of value. They only exist as instruments of your own gratification. So you'll never broach that barrier because if you see them as a human being, you can't use them anymore the way you used to. And so, uh, for me, Yudhe I know their pain. I am with you. That's Moses. That's what Moses gets at the burning bush. That there's an empathy principle in the universe, and Pharaoh stands in direct opposition to it, just as each of us do when our empathy is cut off. And that's again why. Um, I'm, con- that, uh, I, I'm pretty sure Donald Trump truly uh, does not have um, uh, an understanding of empathy because of the way he's wired. And we're, that's another reason why I think we're in deep doo-doo. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. How do you reach? So how do you reach? How do you reach? What do you do? And I think that's why the Exodus story really calls out to us again, uh, what do we do with a ruler who does not know yod he and therefore has no capacity to know your pain. And does it have um, to be power against power? Does it have to be against? Does it have to be power against power? I mean, God is saying here, I will make Pharaoh understand that I am greater. How? So, How? Through an exhibition of power that will force him to let you go. So it's not a pretty picture. What does that do to us if we have to be that way? What does that mean? What does that do to our I'm putting that question on the table. What does that mean? What does it do to my soul if I have to be that way? Right. Yeah, I, I mean, I've been facing a lot of questions about what it means to be a feminist now. I grew up at a time when women's rights were really solid. Um, you know, I, I consider myself a third generation, third wave feminist. Can you hear her, Bob? No. Just no, barely. Oh, okay. okay. You're going to have to use your teacher voice. Yes. Okay. Um, I've been thinking a lot about what it means to be a feminist. I grew up, fortunately, at a time when women's rights were really solid and was able to sort of cavalierly identify as a third wave feminist. I could wear whatever I wanted. You know, I I didn't even really have to worry about feminism. But uh, now it looks like I'm being introduced to maybe a harsher climate um, similar to that of the second wave feminists um, in which there's, there are questions about where to draw the line. You know, um, with regard to women's rights. 
Yes. Or human rights. And human rights. So we are going to encounter the question of how to engage in nonviolent activism um, that's powerful because it embraces the empathy principle. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's, that's what... This, that's hmm? not what this story is That about. is not what happens in this story. No. I mean, that's not what happens in this story. First, I want to find out whether there's another path. Right? Do you, follow, do you follow what I'm saying? I'm not ready to jump on to... Uh, I, I don't want... We're not there yet. We're not there for the violence. Right. Right. Well, there's plenty... There's millions and millions of citizens who are ready to, to engage in power uh, without engaging in violence. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's certainly going to be my first recourse, not my last. Yeah. Because war is the, always the, the last option uh, um, in, in human affairs for, the, for anyone who has, is a person of conscience. Um, uh, Harris? Yeah, I'm, I'm jumping the gun. I, I don't know the rest of the story too well. <laughs> I bet you do. Um, this the story, it, there's two things going on that I see. It's unfolding for the Pharaoh, this story. It, right in front of his eyes, in front of our eyes, it's unfolding for the Pharaoh. But it's unfolding, the punishment for the Jews is simultaneously, they're acquiring an experience simultaneously as the Pharaoh's getting his, his or he will get his butt kicked, the Jews are also, because like you mentioned before about addiction, the Jews, however hard they had it, they didn't hit bottom, like they talk about in drug addiction. So now, they're getting a little taste of more hardship, mm -hmm. and the other guy's getting a, a kick in the ass of his ego. So it's just both are getting uh, messages from that higher up with his plan. Right, both the oppressor and the victim have are in... Uh, Neuro. Oppressors need victims, and victims need oppressors. You know, if that's your identity, then you're going to look for someone who's going to do that dance with you. And it has to get... I agree with you. I understand what you're saying. And here, that actually leads into this next passage uh, that'll reinforce uh, what you were saying on page 382, the beginning of our Parsha. So, I read. Uh, I'm on, uh, on verse 4. I also, says God, established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. I have now heard the moaning of the Israelites because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the children of Israel, I am yod heh I will free you from the labors of the Egyptians and deliver you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and through extraordinary chastisements. And I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I, yod heh am your God who freed you from the labors of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession, I, yod heh And all the people said, yeah, let's go. No. <laughs> Instead it says, but when Moses told this to the Israelites, they would not listen to Moses, their spirits crushed 
by cruel bondage. <clears throat> also, you know, a lot of mashugana come along with saying things like this, and you don't know which one is the right one to follow. That's true, too. On the other hand, imagine, sure, um, but imagine that Moses is like, just there irrefutably exuding who's going to follow uh, someone who has some hope in their heart I mean some they, they their spirits the reason they don't follow Moses isn't because they're skeptical of charismatic leaders it says they couldn't listen to Moses because their spirits had been crushed by cruel bondage so I think a, I think a more direct reading is that uh, Diane um, it doesn't say, but they would not listen to Moses because they didn't trust charismatic leaders. Um, uh, on the other hand, they've already been let down by Moses. Their work's gotten harder. So I guess you're right. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, when I read this, I can't now, because we're thinking about the present, I can't help think it says, um, the spirit's crushed by cruel bondage. And I, I hear all the remarks that people make about, well, you know, if this group of people wanted it better, why aren't they out there voting? Right. We didn't see so many, right. you know, um, Hispanics or blacks. Or, and I said, my God, you know, these people working two, three jobs, as you said, they don't have money for a Funko just to get to wherever these marches or voting places are. Who's going to let them off from their job? And this little thing, yeah. and they've been promised by so many politicians have promised right. them. Our job isn't going to get better. I can't even worry about that. There's, I've got to worry about right. getting some Remember, milk in the refrigerator for my kids. This has been their systemic reality for generations. Yeah. And I just, my wife Ellen just uh, shared a podcast with me. I only listened to one out of five episodes by Brooke Gladstone of the Media Project exploring poverty mm -hmm. in America and the it's so mm. clear and that's why it's on my mind just what Pauline was saying the uh, um, it's like they're they're just you keeping know, their head above you're, water you're not coming to school you're not going or to not ETA meetings they're not checking up on your kids when how right why? so uh, I recommend this podcast series if you it was so clear and for me in my very comfortable middle-class existence, uh, um, I don't have to pay attention to any of that. Mm -hmm. So I was really grateful but to listen to it. Yes? I know that there are other reasons, many reasons why people can't vote, but for, I have to throw this in. For years, I've been wondering why Election Day is not a day off. It's right. National why so Election Day is not a national holiday. Right. right, right, yes. There's, okay. Uh -huh. We don't have to go. Right, we don't have to go there uh, right now, but it's, uh, we, we're, we're dancing around those questions exactly. You know, uh, whether it's willful or systemic or a little of both, uh, there's a desire that, that uh, not everyone should be able to get to the polls. That's clear. It's getting clearer. And now it's all on the table. So uh, they couldn't listen to Moses. Their spirits have been crushed by cruel bondage. It makes me think about um, some of the teachings about Moses and, that, and say comparing Moses to Gandhi or to Martin Luther King or other leaders who, or Nelson Mandela who um, 
had got Moses grew up in Pharaoh's palace. Mm-hmm. He knew entitlement. Mm-hmm. He also knew how to talk that way, right? Mm-hmm. He knew how to take an SAT test. He knew how to uh, walk into a building and demand to be heard. In right suits. And right. He knew how right to, he knew how to dress. <laughs> Uh, King also, you know, he had a PhD. He mm-hmm. studied. He, he he was. He had. Uh, he knew how uh, the other half lived, right? So he could talk their language while he talked his, to his people. And Gandhi got a law degree and went to India for twenty years, and then came back. Mm-hmm. And so I think about these things as maybe in order to get somebody has to get their head far enough above water. To then try to help schlep everybody else out, and it's one of the things I think about uh, those great leaders. Mandela also was a lawyer uh, and a powerful figure. And that's why I think that these people are, are almost prophetic, because there's something inside of them that they could just as wherever else they could have stayed on their road and mm-hmm. been fine. It wasn't that their lives were so also terrible. They were being called by the same. That's right. Books. Moses. Moses never had to really go go out and go. slay that taskmaster, mm-hmm. right? He he, he had he it good. Could have gotten away with. Oh right! After he killed him, you know, hey, Pharaoh's yeah. word is law anyway. Yeah. I'll just go back to the palace and ask Dad to take care of it. You know, all of that's right. Had that's other right. Choices, and there was something in, I think that that their. Hearts and they're, they're tremendous. Well, energy. I'm going to say that using our traditional language, they knew yud hey vav hey, right? Their hearts and consciousness were open to this greater power in the universe that exceeds the power of force and of domination. That's what, that's, that's what, the, that's what this figuratively, this burning bush message is. But then Yudhebave uh, <clears throat> convinces Pharaoh and I guess the, the Jews to through um, extraordinary chastisements. Extraordinary chastisements, very huh. very concrete uh, torture. Yeah, I mean, well, it's here not I would very not very base methods. Right, but, but the, the, I, I don't think so. Well, no, let me put it that way. Uh, on the plain level of the story, we have a contest. Mm-hmm. And the, it's set up so that Pharaoh is going to lose the contest to the creator of the universe, and the people are going to go free. And yes, Pharaoh gets his ass kicked. And, and that's a language that the slaves can understand. That's right. That's but right. That's a language the slaves can understand. On the figurative level, Pharaoh is hoist on his own petard, whatever a petard is. Bomb. What's a petard? It's, it's a bomb, like it's a, a blast. It's really? Blast. Yeah, in some, language, in some languages it's like a slang for fart. But it means oh, really? an explosion. Well, cool. Could you be hoisted on it? Uh, I don't know, we gotta look that up. Blown up by it. Oh, really? So, I looked it up recently. I thank you. So, so, on the figurative level, <laughs> life unfolding, and this is my conviction, just like, you know, follow the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. 
on that, in that large sort of frame, um, the, nature of crea- the nature of reality uh, always brings someone who tyrannically wants to hold on to what's theirs down. Because life is change, and life is new birth, and life is, you know, and so someone who wants to think they're in charge and can fix the universe in the way they want it to be fixed, become a petty tyrant in their own life, or if they are, if we're unfortunate enough that they rise to greater power, tries to fix us in their, and I think life will always win out. The, the, the sprouts will shoot up through the asphalt. And it's going to be a struggle. Um, but that's the story here. To make, it, to, make it e- to make what you're saying even stronger, there's another Midrash where Rabbi Jonathan Sachs talks about each of the plagues. And in reality, they were plagues against the gods that the Egyptians and pharaohs believed in. They were... When the, when the Nile turned to the Nile blood, is a god. the Nile, every one was a god. The frogs, he goes through each of the plagues. And, to, and so that if we take that, if it was true, trying to demonstrate that, that this god isn't, isn't the highest god, there is something higher. It's like going to say and convincing certain segments of our society that may believe that it's how much money you make that is what's important. Right. This is the priority. This <coughs> is the hierarchy of what we can believe in. And it, I thought it was fascinating because I was always, being an anti-violent person by nature, I was always turned off a little with the plagues, yep. the signs <laughs> and the wonders. But what were these signs? Why did they use signs and wonders? Why not just miracles? because these signs were given, these representations to the Egyptians and to Pharaoh of what does it mean if this god of yours here, the one of the Nile that is supposed to give life and fertility, if it doesn't work anymore, then where do you go? Well, we'll go to the next god, the god of the frogs. Well, that's not gonna work if they get, yeah, if they get over. So each one of these, if it can be looked at in a, symbolic spiritual way in a very different way not just all right and then lice was the lord of the flies i guess yeah got it (laughs) Um, so aren't the the signs though also for the israelites yes very much however what i want to oh i said i said the lice plague is uh was for the lord of the flies i was just uh, but (laughs) what what i want to say about that and then i want to look at this reading um is that there's a lot we don't know about the context of this story. Each of those plagues might have been a self-evident allusion to something mm-hmm. that everybody knew about mm-hmm. Egypt and its gods. And uh, it was showing systematically mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, the over, the, just the complete powerlessness of each of those presumed gods that Pharaoh you know, was uh, connected to. So, I think that's an interesting question that we can only kind of take educated guesses at, like, uh, like Jonathan Saxton. So now, what I have... He- thank you. So what I have here, Abraham Joshua Heschel, from this extraordinary collection called The Insecurity of Freedom, 
Essays on Human Existence. I just love the title, The Insecurity of Freedom. Because everything about Heschel comes so directly out of the Jewish tradition. He was, um, he grew up in a Hasidic household being groomed to be the next leader of that Hasidic house, uh, um, community. And he was a, and he left it and became a scholar, uh, a Jewish scholar um, in America after he escaped from the Nazis. Um, and you've heard me talk about him before, probably. He's uh, best uh, remembered these days because of his close friendship and uh, um, collaboration with Martin Luther King. But he himself, when you saw pictures of him, he had a thick Yiddish accent. Uh, he had a beard and white hair. He looks like a rabbi. You know, he just looks like a Jew. So, um, but he became incredibly active in American politics in the uh, 50s and 60s and early 70s when he passed away in 1972. So this essay, I want to read it as a commentary on Exodus, okay? Because there are so many allusions. And this talk called Religion and Race was the opening address at the National Conference on Religion and Race, Chicago, January 14th, 1963. Okay? Here's how he starts. At the first conference on religion and race, the main participants were Pharaoh and Moses. <laughs> Moses' words were, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast to me. While Pharaoh retorted, Who is the Lord, that I should heed this voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. The outcome of that summit meeting has not come to an end. Pharaoh is not ready to capitulate. The exodus began, but is far from having been completed. In fact, it was easier for the children of Israel to cross the Red Sea than for a Negro to cross certain university campuses. Then he says, let us dodge no issues. Let us yield no inch to bigotry. Let us make no compromise with callousness. In the words of William Lloyd Garrison, I will be as harsh as truth and as uncompromising as justice on this subject of slavery. I do not wish to think, to speak, or to write with moderation. I am in earnest. I will not equivocate. I will not excuse. I will not retreat a single inch. And I will be heard. I want to stop there for a second. Wow. Uh, that's, I think I'm going to put that on my wall. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> he's, not, he's, not he's not saying I'm going to kill you. He's saying, on the subject of slavery, I do not wish to think, to speak, or to write with moderation. I am in earnest. He was an abolitionist, William Lloyd Garrison. Uh, I will not equivocate, I will not excuse, I will not retreat a single inch, and I will be hurt. Religion and race, how can the two be uttered together? To act in the spirit of religion is to unite what lies apart, to remember that humanity as a whole is God's beloved child. To act in the spirit of race is to sunder, to slash, to dismember the flesh of living humanity. Wow, Jesus. 
Is this the way to honor a father, to torture his child? How can we hear the word race and feel no self-reproach? Race as a normative, legal, or political concept is capable of expanding to formidable dimensions. A mere thought, remember race, I mean, I can't believe how insightful it is. Race is a human construct. Why don't we, why, we could all think of ourselves as the human race, and that'd be the end of it, right? Race is an invention of humans. Um, race, uh, uh, a mere thought, it extends to become a way of thinking, a highway of insolence, as well as a standard of values overriding truth, justice, and beauty. As a standard of values and behavior, race operates as a comprehensive doctrine as racism, and racism is worse than idolatry. Racism is Satanism, unmitigated evil. Few of us seem to realize how insidious, how radical, how universal and evil racism is. Few of us realize that racism is man's gravest threat to man. Pardon the old uh, masculine language. Mm -hmm. Uh, the maximum of hatred for a minimum of reason. The maximum of cruelty for a minimum of thinking. Holy smokes. Wow. Perhaps this conference should have been called religion or race. You cannot worship God and at the same time look at man as if he were a horse. Shortly before he died, Moses spoke to his people. I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day. I have put before you life and death blessing and curse. Choose life. The aim of this conference is, first of all, to state clearly the stark alternative. I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day. I have set before you religion and race, life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life. Reinhold Niebuhr said, race prejudice, a universal human ailment, is the most recalcitrant aspect of the evil in man a treacherous denial of the existence of God. So what is an idol? Any God who is mine but not yours. Any God concerned with me but not with you is an idol. We have a new sign to make. Every, every sentence, he, every sentence he writes, I feel, uh, stands... Faith in God is not simply an afterlife insurance policy. <laughs> <laughs> Racial or religious bigotry must be recognized for what it is, Satanism and blasphemy. In several many ways, man is set apart from all beings created in six days. The Bible does not say God created the plant or the animal. You see page 87? Mm -hmm. It says God created different kinds of plants, different kinds of animals. In striking contrast, it does not say God created different kinds of man, men of different colors and races. It proclaims God created one single man. From one single human, all humans are descended. To think of man in terms of white, black, or yellow is more than an error. It is an eye disease, 
a cancer of the soul. Now, I want to pause for a second and say that Heschel is speaking classic rabbinic teachings from the Mishnah in 20th century terms. He is not speaking as a modern... He's a humanist, obviously, and he's a modernist. But he's not speaking as a modern humanist. He's speaking as a traditional Jew who, who is a person of unbelievable heart and intellect. It, because you've heard me teach, perhaps, that the rabbis spend a lot of time in the Mishnah explaining why God created a single human being. And it's all about so that we couldn't lord it over another one. Right. Right. So this is not Heschel being like taking the sources and twisting them. It's he's just sharing them with us in the modern idiom. And I want you to know that. Didn't work out so well yet. Uh, well, you know, read some of the columns about how global poverty continues to decline, how diseases are continuing to be eradicated, how the battle, that's why he says, um, uh, the outcome of that summit meeting has not come to an end. For every piece of bad news, there's also good news in the world. And uh, it's important to remember that, especially because we only, you know, we're, we're in, bad, we're in bad, a bad space. But uh, there's really true that statistically, global humanity uh, uh, in general is in better shape than it's ever been in history. More fed, more educated, you know. It's a battle. It's a, it's, okay, I'm going to read some more. The redeeming quality of man lies in his ability to sense his kinship with all men. Yet there is a deadly poison that inflames the eye making us see the generality of race, but not the uniqueness of the human face. Pigmentation is what counts. The Negro is a stranger to many souls. There are people in our country whose moral sensitivity suffers a blackout when confronted with the black man's predicament. How many disasters... See, here's the question of um, the plagues, Diane. How many disasters do we have to go through in order to realize that all of humanity has a stake in the liberty of one person. Whenever one person is offended, we are all hurt. What begins as an equality of some inevitably ends as an equality of all. That's how many disasters. In referring to the Negro in this paper, we must, of course, always keep equally in mind the plight of all individuals belonging to a racial, religious, ethnic, or cultural minority. This conference should dedicate itself not only to the problem of the Negro, but also to the problem of the white man. Not only to the plight of the colored, but also to the situation of white people. That's really important. To the cure of a disease affecting the spiritual substance and condition of every one of us. What we need is an NAAAP, a National Association for the Advancement of All People. Prayer and prejudice cannot dwell in the same heart. Another little aphorism for the ages. Worship without compassion. And here I am again with the compassion principle. I know their pain. Worship without compassion is worse than self-deception. It is an abomination. And that is the truth. Thus the problem is not only how to do justice to the colored people, it is also how to stop the profanation of God's name by dishonoring the Negro's name. 100 years ago, the emancipation was proclaimed. 
It is time for the white man to strive for self-emancipation, to set himself free of bigotry, to stop being a slave to wholesale contempt, a passive recipient of slander. Now, we are in an age of wholesale contempt. And how do we not be passive recipients of this? Isn't this amazing? I hope you think that it's a... a, a um, um, uh, let's see. Okay, we'll stop there. Take this home and keep reading. I accepted parts one, two, and then the last section. It's a longer essay. What year is this? You said in 63? Here, I'll, I'll tell you again, Bob. What month? I'll tell you right now. Uh, this was the opening address. 63. Yeah, this was the opening address at the National Conference on Religion and Race. Chicago, January 14th, 1963. So, January 14th, just about now. 54 years ago. And, yes, the outcome of that original summit between Moses and Pharaoh hasn't yet been determined. I think that's one of the best lines I've ever heard. Um... I'll, uh, I'll, to conclude with, if you look on the back, page 99, here's how he concluded his address. And you'll notice that this is before the I Have a Dream speech, which was in April of that year. Heschel and King were collaborators, and it's one of the one of the, it's one of the things that just moved me, moved me very deeply. In the words of the prophet Amos, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. A mighty stream expressive of the vehemence of a never-ending, surging, fighting movement, as if obstacles had to be washed away for justice to be done. No rock is so hard that water cannot pierce it. As Job says, but the mountain falls and crumbles away and the rock is removed from its place. The waters wear away the stones. Justice is not a mere norm, but a fighting challenge, a restless drive. Righteousness is a mere, as a mere tributary, feeding the immense stream of human interests, is easily exhausted and more easily abused. But righteousness is not a trickle. It is God's power in the world a torrent, an impetuous drive, full of grandeur and majesty. The surge is choked, the sweep is blocked, yet the mighty stream will break all dikes. Justice, people seem to agree, is a principle, a norm, an ideal of the highest importance. We all insist that it ought to be, but it may not be. But in the eyes of the prophets, justice is more than an idea or a norm. Justice is charged with the omnipotence of God. What ought to be, shall be. This is nice. It's, it's nice too. I mean, I've heard this quote so many times, of course, but it just struck me. Righteousness like a mighty stream. Not an earthquake, not a volcano, which are single, you know, time-limited events. A mighty stream, it keeps going, and it doesn't wear the rock away immediately. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. That's right. And it can't lose its momentum. 
That's right. When I was at the march, I saw uh, one of my favorite signs said, um, justice is what love looks like in public. Mm -hmm. <laughs> wow. I thought that was great. Yeah. Who, who said it? Was, I was at the march and it was one of the signs that somebody was carrying. Justice is what love looks like in public. Oh, boy, that's a keeper. Oh, boy. Well, thank you, everybody. I think the Torah is relevant. Yes. Amen. Amen.